Hi and welcome to Lessons I Learned in Law with me, Scott Brown, founder and managing director of Harriet Brown in-house legal recruitment. I am delighted to be, for the first time, dipping my toe in recording a podcast in the flesh, hosted by Beamery Today. It's great to be here with our guest today, to be kicking off Series 5 of Lessons I Learned in Law with a bang. Lessons I Learned in Law, it was a bit of a lockdown side hustle for me. I'm a recovering lawyer myself, now legal recruiter, and our mission is to find lawyers fulfilling careers in-house. So hopefully this podcast where I meet with leaders within the legal profession from across all sectors gives you a good flavour for what it takes to get to the top and the lessons that people have learned in their careers to date. I'm delighted to be joined today by X, who is Chief Legal and Impact Officer at Beamery. Hi Scott, thanks Hi. for coming. Thank you, thank you for hosting us. I'm welcoming you today, but I feel like I should be saying thank you for having us. <laughs> Well, thank you for being the first to record in the space. So, um, yeah, we're baptizing it today. So, yeah. couldn't think of a better way. It's brilliant. Super impressive. Such a good setup. It's given us loads of ideas. So, X is, as I said, Chief Legal and Impact Officer at Beamery, which we'll hear hopefully a lot more about what that position entails and, and how you got there. But, Beamery are a talent lifecycle management platform, a SaaS business tech company, and it that allows enterprises to create talent-centric, human-centric experiences for all talents. My background ex trained at Field Fisher and with a couple of secondments in there and since 2013 he's been in-house both in industry and tech companies and in venture capital as well, so seen it from both sides. Welcome X, I'm really keen to have this conversation and see where it takes us. We'll jump in, what's your first lesson? The one I always think about is that there's no one way to have a legal career. And I think definitely when I started, there was only one path. You would either do an LB or you would do a conversion course. You would do your LPC. You would do your training contract in a law firm because at the time it was frowned upon to do a training contract in-house. Mm. And then, you know, you'd qualify and you'd spend your rest of your life in a law firm. So that's where I came from. But I'm so glad that things have evolved in the past. I'm not going to say how many years because otherwise I'll be telling my age. <laughs> But for how so long, and even now with you know the whole SQE one, SQE two, it's just there's so much more opportunities, and I think people should not restrict their thinking of, oh, if I want to be an in-house lawyer, I need to follow a very specific path. Mm -hmm. I think that's in my mind that's not correct. And if I had to do it again, I actually don't think I would have done the route I took because I think now these days, again, when you think of legal ops, when you think of some roles internally are very specialized, right? I mean, some in-house teams are structured like a law firm. Yeah. So, you know, there's, in my mind, to start your journey in-house completely by doing the paralegal route and then training in-house with the SQE route, even going dabbling into legal ops and then going back to being a lawyer, like, there's, there's just, there's no one path. I always find it, even to this day, quite frustrating when people advertise this career in law that only means you have to do like these three steps to get there because that in my mind that's just completely wrong conveyor belt yeah and how did you decide on the career track into to the legal profession well i never wanted to be a lawyer right <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to be a pilot right uh, but then as Got the you, headphones on today well yeah I, I feel like one today <laughs> but then of course you know parents being pushy parents being like well if you're gonna if you're gonna go to university do something that is a profession. So I was like, great. When I started, I needed a visa to be in this country. 
and I don't know if I can say this, but I fucked around at uni and right. I didn't get the best of grades. Yeah, so it doesn't. I uh, <laughs> I didn't st- I didn't have the best head start. Right. Um, so when I was applying, I really had to hustle to get even my first paralegal job. So again, for me, you know, whenever someone thinks of one things I've learned again is just networking and the power of networking, because sometimes your grades are not enough or sometimes your CV is not enough. And it's what, you know, to you as a person around it, that makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have all the best odds on my side, but yeah, that first paralegal job at Phil Fisher actually is really what changed it for me because then I was able to sort of prove myself and show to them that I was a bit more than what my grades were on paper and then I got the training contract and then the secondments, again, is what really opened my eyes to the world of legal. Right. Because, again, I was really sort of, you know, train a law firm, stay in a law firm, and that's it. I might change law firm once in my life. But turns out I've changed, you know, since I've qualified, I've had four jobs all in-house. Yeah. But the secondments is really what opened my eyes. Uh, so I, I guess actually spend more time on secondment than I was at Field Fisher, both as a paralegal and as a trainee. And that was at Amazon. and So I went to MTV was the first one. And then I went to Getty Images twice, actually. I was actually there during the London Olympics and I had a press pass, which was amazing. But that's a different story for another day. <laughs> and then I went to Amazon. And then when I qualified, I think out of the three years at Phil Fisher, I had spent yeah 20 months on secondment. Yeah. And then I resigned the day after I qualified or like a week later. Yeah, I might, Because I knew my heart was working in-house and helping businesses achieve their goals. I know a lot of people say this, but yeah, when you work in private practice, you, te- you don't t- tend to see things end to end and you, it's, a, it's a different job. I think there's an appreciation now that they are two distinctive jobs. Totally. Different, I, I think they're different careers. The, the skill sets um, 100%. Are, are chalk and cheese and it's the one transition from moving from practice into in-house. You have to get your head around it as well. 100%. But again, my first choice of, of job when I moved in-house, I didn't think that I would spend my whole career then in tech yeah. or in growth venture companies. And what I tell, you know, I now have a paralegal and a trainee who's just qualified actually that I sort of help sort of mentor. And I always tell them, don't be so narrow-minded on what industry you should go into or what sector you should go into. Like just every opportunity is a good opportunity and every opportunity will, in 10 years time, you'll reflect on it and be like, yeah, that's what got me to where I am today. Yeah. Because I know some, some people that like, I need to work in fintech because it's the next big thing. I mean, it probably is and great. But that doesn't mean that other industries can't give you that experience or that outlook on what you do that I would try to stay away from people being narrow-minded. Because you're, you're the first job that you get once you're qualified does not 100% define your career. Yeah. When you were a wannabe lawyer at university, yeah. <laughs> what resources were you looking at that said, this is the only route, private practice is the, the route you must go down? or? I mean, at the time, it was a lot of careers fairs back in the days where you used to do stuff in person. So there was a lot of those organized by the law school. So obviously, you know, the next step after the I did the LLB was the LPC. So, you know, you'd speak to all the law schools and it was very clear that that was the path that you had. I think the resources back then were very more narrow than they are today. So, yeah, that's what we were exposed to back then. And again, a lot of the people you could speak to when you went to those networking events or things, everyone was in private practice. Like the in-house world hadn't sort of exploded like it has in the past sort of five-ish years, right? So yes, people knew the odd in-house lawyer, but there wasn't that, as you just said, it's a distinctive job, right? So there was a different view of 
in-house than I think there is today. Yeah. So yeah, the, the resources that we had were, was not as broad as I think people mm-hmm. have today. Yeah, I remember going to a career fair Edinburgh University and it, the in-house representation was the government legal department and I didn't really get an understanding as to what that looked like and it was so far down my wish list at that point in time but I, well, I, didn't, I just didn't understand what it was. Did you go to yours? Was there, there was a huge push at the time as well by um, the military. They used to attend all careers fairs. Right. Yeah, word of advice, never get wasted with people that are attending (laughs) careers fairs and think you're going to get a job out of it. It might have the opposite effect. (laughs) But yeah, Yeah. there was a huge push at the time, I remember, for sort of all government legal services, which I guess was the exposure to in-house, right? Yeah. So was that one of your... (laughs) You were talking about the, the, the things you did at university. What was the craziest thing? I don't think it's a podcast worthy, Um, but yeah, I think back in, I say back in the days, like, you know, it was 20 years ago, but it wasn't uncommon for us to just go straight from going out to go to lectures and then, you know, missing deadlines for submitting things and partying the night before of exams. I feel like this generation are a lot more screwed on. That's what chat GPT is for now, isn't it? Yeah, that too. I mean, if I had that then, I don't think I'd ever turn up to any uni. (laughs) Writing writing an essay. They don't know they're born. No. (laughs) And then moving in-house, when you made that decision and you you felt this is the route I want to take or that's the role I want to have, what were your next steps? Are you creating five-year plans in your head or how are you? So I'm going to be controversial here. I've never had any plans. Right. I've literally taken things as they've come along. And I guess... I think that has helped me because it's given me the flexibility of mind to be open to any opportunity. So every job that I've had has happened organically. So when I went into my first in-house role, a company called Kelway, they're an IT reseller. So I stayed there for a couple of years. We then sold the business to a US listed company. So then I had that experience. And then I was like, you know what? I'm done with working for US listed. I want to go back to a growth company. And then through networking, I can't remember how it really happened. I think they found me, but... I then got introduced to Haiku, a legal tech company. And again, I didn't know I wanted to move to legal tech, right? So then spent a couple of years there. We then sold them to Thomson Reuters. And then one of the investors of Haiku was like, hey, we'd love working with you. Why don't you you join our fund? We don't have an in-house counsel. You can be the first one. And they were about to raise a new fund. And whilst I was there, we did like three or five investments. Again, I didn't know I was going to work in private equity. I didn't know how to read a partnership agreement uh, before I, I started. So, and then... The pandemic happened and then I realized that there was more to life than making rich people richer. And I decided <laughs> to join, you know, a sort of impact-driven company. And that's how Beamery came about, HR tech. Yes. So I've just taken opportunities that they've come along because all of the skills should be transferable. Yeah. I think they are. Yeah. And for areas that you don't know, you're looking for specialist areas. You're 100%. going to the people that know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's true for any sector, right? I know that Sometimes when you think of some of the newer sectors like renewables or energy, people want people that have been in private practice and six years of of energy experience. But it's like, yeah, but this person has never done a fundraising in their life or this person has never fired someone in 20 jurisdictions or, you know, so it's the skills are much broader than, you know, very specific experiences. And that's, I think, what I bring. I always say I'm a jack of all trades, but master of none. And I think that's helped me in my career, right? Some people are more specialize and focus and that's fine yeah maybe they do a much better job than i do i don't know but that's definitely helped me and i'm, I'm quite happy with that yeah, yeah. transfer this is the transferable skill set and when you're at that strategic level advising the you're part of the management team you're exactly 
a risk advisor and a year for risk as well. Well, and for me, it was really that sort of working with founders and leadership teams that I really enjoy working in-house. I think that what really does it for me. Yes, we'll have to do the day-to-day legal stuff, but it's that strategic discussions. It's, you know, how do we grow the business? And, and this is part of what other things I've learned, which is if you don't want to be the lawyer in the room, then you're pretty damn sure you have to speak the business language. Yeah. Right, you should be able to speak to the CFO and speak his language. You should be able to speak to your chief people officer and speak their language, with your chief revenue officer, with your CEO, and and that's I think what makes a difference between potentially people that only hone in their technical skills and people that are quite open to becoming the business person. Because what that then resolves for a lot of people is the discussion of who should the GC report to. And I get wildly offended when I see reporting lines to the CFO or COO. I would never touch these jobs in a lifetime because to me, it signals that businesses don't appreciate what GCs do. Because again, through all my roles, I know that more often than not, the person that the CEO calls when there's a problem is generally the GC first before anybody else, right? And that trust that you build is, I think, very unique to the skill set that we as lawyers have and So it's a very privileged role. And I think, yeah, becoming that person is what I get a kick out of and what I've basically done my whole career. We'll move on to lesson two. So it's something that it's hard to do, but I think if you do it and you do it right, it can really set you apart, I think, from others, which is when you come to work, bring your whole self to work. And... I always say this word wrong, but be unapologetically you. I got it right. Um, Because especially in this day and age, I think it's really important that, yeah, when people show up for work, when you show up to a meeting, when you just in your day-to-day interactions, A, that you're not a dick, Mm -hmm. but also that you, you, you are yourself. Right. And it's not, I don't think it, it's helps anyone in this day and age to try and, be someone they're not because ultimately it catches up on you and you cannot be your the best version of yourself if you're constantly trying to be someone else yeah. or, or be someone that you're not obviously from my personal perspective you know that meant that when I was even a paralegal I sort of I hate the term but sort of came out and that was you know in those days it was as a paralegal it was a bit gutsy right yeah. because I know people to this day that are partners in law firms or senior associates that don't come out yeah. or that live completely separate lives. Um, and I made that decision earlier on. Actually, I use it to my advantage. So when I did that, I, I opened at the time sort of the firm's first sort of LGBTQ society. And I was putting together sort of fundraising events for a charity called Diversity Role Models. And again, that just elevates your profile and you have discussions with the managing partner of the firm that you wouldn't do before and because then they get excited to bring their clients and, you know, all the kind of stuff. So I think there's a way to hone people's differences yeah. in a way that they can use it to their advantage. And I say that about sexual orientation, but you could say the same for gender. You could say the same for people that have, you know, neurodiversity, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. I think in my mind, there's always a way to change the narrative and to use that narrative to your advantage and always making sure that you stay true to yourself. And I always tell people what you see is what you get. So how I'm talking to you now, I talk exactly the same to our founder. I would talk exactly the same in an interview because my point is if people don't like you for who you are, then why bother, right? And you probably don't want to hear this, but I never prepare for interviews 
because again, if you're not the best version of yourself when you turn up at that time, of course I do some due diligence, right? But I'm not like rehearsing answers to everything. Yeah. Because if if what I'm saying in the moment, based on the circumstances, right? Like my interview at Beamery, it was it was during COVID and it was a walking interview. I mean, you can't prepare for that, right? No. So you just got to be who you are on that day based on the circumstances around you. And we had a few funny stories. And again, you build that relationship with someone. It's just being yourself. And what I try to do now when I haven't interviewed, I haven't interviewed for a long time, but when I was looking for the role for Beamery, is just teasing out as well from people that you're speaking to, what is their views on DNI? And I use that term generally, but just, you know, throwing in the fact, in my case, that I had a fiance that was a man that I struggled with mental health or depression and mm-hmm. just seeing how that bounces back. Because again, you then get a really good feel for the environment that you're walking into. And also you're just building that extra connection with someone, right? People want to connect with people. People don't want yeah. to connect with robots. Yeah. At this level, you have to assume that technically everyone is good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. So it's about that, what else do you bring to the table? Mm-hmm. And in my, from my perspective, that's bringing your whole self and, yeah, being you. Yeah. And if you don't, it's going to come out in the wash at some point and it's, you're pretending to be someone 100%. living up to that every single day. And How way I've seen it come out is in-house roles like private practice can be quite, there's a lot going on, it can be stressful, right? But when times are tough, usually that's when people's true personalities come out. And if you then do a 360 on who you are on a normal day versus who are in a bad day, yeah. it can really set people off, right? And you, create, you can create a chain of events that just purely based on who mm. you were that day. In my career, I've had to deal with things I've never thought I would ever have to deal with as an in-house lawyer. But how you react in those moments, I think, is key. And again, if a year before that, you were this like happy person that always, and then on that day you like fall apart. Mm-hmm. People can be like, what the hell's going <laughs> yeah, on, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Back in, in paralegal days and coming out, how did you approach that? Oh, I, I think I just, I just said it. Yeah. Well, I don't think I said it. I think I just normalized it. Yeah, did you feel you had to? No, I, this is why I don't like the word coming out because I didn't like sat down with a partner and was like, hey, Mm-hmm. This is the deal. Just in case. I think I just normalized it, right? When someone be like, what did you do last night? I was like, yeah, I went on a date or, mm-hmm. you know, my boyfriend or whatever it was. And I think that's with a lot of these things is just normalizing it and making it just, it is what it is. I mean, it's 2023, right? If yeah. people are still bothered about that, then I think there's have bigger issues. Then. <laughs> yeah, completely. And that's my view about all, all streams of diversity. I was, I was thinking about this the other day, just about lockdown we had a, a, a bigger window into people's lives outside of work. Do you feel things have changed and shifted since you're back in the office and approach to dealing with colleagues? 100%. I think, I think lockdown, I don't want to say it was good, <laughs> but I think it helped, especially with teams, really deepen relationships in ways that maybe in person you couldn't have. But then it also shows a lot of the cracks, especially for you know more junior Again, I speak of lawyers, right? More junior lawyers trying to learn. It's a lot harder when you're in a hybrid model. And we, so we, at Beam, we're in a hybrid model and my team comes in at least two days a week. We can already see the difference and we've been doing it now for a year of how much they've learned and developed in those two days versus in lockdown. Yeah. I think, again, lockdown gave us a nine to people's life, which is amazing, but I think we should build on that, right? I don't think it's like, oh, that was lockdown. Now we should all go back to work and forget 
you know, everything we've learned from it. Because I think there was a lot of good things that came out of it. Again, it, it shed a huge light on people's mental health and how they deal with it and people's personal life and that work-life balance that's so important, which now businesses are struggling with because you've given people so much freedom and liberty to basically do what they want when they were working from home. Yeah. And now it's like trying to rein that back. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, businesses are struggling with that quite a lot. What do you see as a, a solution? I don't know. I, what I tell my team is, and I do believe this, but as long as you're doing your job, I really don't care. Mm-hmm. I, I truly do not care. Again, my team work from, one of them is American. She works for America quite often. I just don't care. I think, again, as long as you bring your best self to work when you're at work, and as long as you're doing what you're supposed to do and go above and beyond in those moments that the business needs you, great. I mean, don't book a bloody holiday at quarter end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, then you're screwing over the whole team. But yeah, if you want to work, I, I worked from Scotland for a month last year in April. Best thing I ever did. Yeah. Not because of Scotland. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, best thing I ever did, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, let's use what we learned from lockdown and build on that yeah. and let people just be themselves and be their best selves and whatever that means for them, right? Because again, there's no right way or wrong way to deliver work or to do work mm-hmm. or to show up to work. So let's make sure we give people opportunities to deliver their best work in the way that works for them. Yeah, and you base it on output rather than Correct. where they're putting, where they're And that is hard, to be honest, right? Because yeah. otherwise, you don't want to be micromanaging everything that someone does to be like, oh, mm. did you work hard enough on this? So I think it's finding, there's always a balance. Yeah, and there's trust. And, um, Correct. I, th- I think you lose trust rather than gain it. It's, if you're hiring someone, you approach it on the position that, there's trust here if, if things 100%. aren't, if you're not, if, and then you have an open, honest conversation about 100%. Where, where things are going wrong if they do. So traveling, traveling to Scotland, what's your passions outside of work? I always say that I live to travel. Right. In terms, you know, every penny that I own goes into traveling. Yeah. Uh, it's how my partner and I bonded. It's, it's a bit harder now with the dog. Yeah. Uh, so we got a dog, a puppy during lockdown. Cool. He wasn't a lockdown puppy. We always were going to get a dog. It just accelerated getting a dog. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I feel the need to sort of have to explain that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we, we love traveling. We, we try and spend as much, all of our holidays. I don't think I've ever taken a day off to sort of sit at home in, in London. Yeah. That's my idea of like a wasted day. Yeah. What was your favorite destination? So one of my dreams, which we did last year, was to go to Svalbard. Okay. Nice. Which is like this archipelago and north of Norway. Okay. Uh, it's the most northern you can go on earth before the North Pole where there's any kind of settlement. Um, yeah. That was mind-blowing. What's it like there? I mean, it's barren land, yeah. which is just ice and polar bears and walruses. And it's just, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, and this year, our big trip is South Korea. Oh, okay. um, yeah, I really want to step into North Korea and go to the DMZ. Um, so that's a that's a big bucket a list. Target on your back. Yeah, I mean, people, our friends make fun of us because we have a shared notes and we have, I think, holidays planned now until 2027. Oh, wow. Um, because yeah. just so many places want to go and we're really trying to yeah make sure we do things that we really want to do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's how I spend my time. And again, I'm really open about it. I was really open open about it when I took the role. To make it clear that, you know, that's how I spend my holidays and I'm not going to compromise on it. So, yes, I sometimes have to work on holidays. I think that just comes with a job anyways. But I have no shame asking for putting down holidays to go for two weeks here and this and that. Yeah. Because that's what's important to me, right? That's why I turn up to work every day. Yeah. 
Otherwise, I wouldn't. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so how do you how do you cope with the dog? They're they're tying dogs, right? You got a troop of friends ready to ready to. Yeah, look so we have them. a rolodex of people. Yeah. Uh, but the best thing for us now is my partner's mum, who comes to the house and just doesn't leave the house for <laughs> yes. the whole time we're there, which is amazing. So yeah, that really has worked for us. Cool. We can't take him abroad. So we're doing a lot more of UK holidays. So Scotland was the first time we sort of went away. Uh, so we're going to Wales later in the year. We're climbing Snowdon with him. Um, so yeah, we're trying to do as much as we can yeah. with the dog as well. And the breed, remind me. Shiba Inu. Shiba Inu. Dogecoin. Great. We'll get a, we'll get a photo um, <laughs> posted. He doesn't, so you might have seen today in our offices, but we have between three and five dogs every day. Oh, uh, but I can't bring him because he's an absolute monster with other dogs. All right. Um, so I've only brought him once, but I had to like message everyone to be like, please don't bring your dog in because <laughs> I will bring Hero. What's he doing? What's he doing? He, he likes to dominate other dogs. He right. thinks he's top dog. Right. <laughs> I, I think partly it's because of the breed. They're primitive breeds. So they're very, um, they've got a very strong personality. They're yeah. Basically a human and a cat in a dog's body. Okay. Uh, but yeah, he likes to think that he rules everyone. So lesson three. I think we touched a little bit on it, but I think it's, for me, it's what's really helped me is not just being the lawyer. Again, because the role of the in-house counsel has, the expectation has changed a lot over the years. I think originally people saw it as like, well, instead of spending money with an external firm, why don't we just hire some legal technical guy to come and sort contracts out? Mm -hmm. But the role is, I mean, it's not even the role, right? The role is a lot bigger than that. And it's about, yeah, advising the business, advising the CEO, talking about strategy, talking about how do you help grow the business? How do you think about an exit? How do you, you know, all of the things, talking to investors, you know, what matters to them, you know, all, all of this. So for me, what's really helped me is from earlier on in my career is being really close to the business. And that's not just, you know, we often talk about internal clients as a legal team, right? Which can be your sales team, can be your marketing team, your HR team, you know, whoever. But it's building relationships even outside of that to really get to a position where you fully understand how the business works. And I think as lawyers, something that's often overlooked is we have a unique perspective of a business because you get to see literally every aspect of it from when, you know, even before your company goes to look out for customers right through the marketing team. And then when that customer comes in through the sales team and then what happens after that in terms of support, because again, we see all of these queries come in and we help those teams with all of these initiatives in many ways, right? So we have a very unique perspective. And often I find myself in positions where I'd be like, hey, you know, talking to someone being like, well, this someone else in this other team is doing something either the same or completely different. Maybe you two should speak. And it's helping connect people within the business. And I think, yeah, legal can be a great conduit to that. And by doing that, you then speak the business language yeah. a lot quicker. And again, has helped me. I, I don't think if I'd done that, I would probably be where I am today. Yeah. Not that where I am today is like be all and end all, but it's really helped me in my career because again, you know, yeah, people will, as I say, if I ever catch myself talking about pure legal things with my CEO, then I like, I literally like stop myself because it's not what, what he wants to hear. No. He wants to talk about the business. He wants to talk about how do we get new customers? How do we, at the moment, everything is about generative AI, right? How do mm -hmm. we incorporate that into our product? What does that look like? Yeah. Sure, in my mind, I'm thinking about the legal privacy and AI side of things, but he doesn't need to know that. He just yeah. wants to know how do we get to market in two weeks? Yeah. 
He wants solutions. He doesn't want problems. So I think the quicker people get that as their mindset, I think it can help people hugely in their career. Yeah. Where did you first learn that then in terms of, was that on secondment or how did you? It was by being on secondment. I think mm. I was really lucky as well to have really good mentors. Mm. He's going to be big headed if I call him out on this, but the first GC that I worked with at Kelway, right. a guy called Tim Ross, I learned a lot because he was very business savvy, very sort of close to the business. And to me, that appealed to me, right? Because again, some lawyers could be frightened by that being thrown into that deep end and being completely out of your comfort zone. But I actually thrive on it. So yeah, I saw what he did and thought, hey, this really appeals to me. Yeah, that's what you want. Yeah. Someone aspirational to, exactly. to look up to. In, but don't in, call him that because his head's going to explode. Oh, will it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how would you advise, if someone's in a, you've been in bigger corporates in, in those legal teams and perhaps feels pigeonholed in a position where they don't have that exposure, how could someone... Or how would you recommend someone goes about getting that exposure? Yeah, I think there's always opportunities. Obviously, if you work in a startup, it's a lot easier mm. or in a growth company, right? Because there's lit, I mean, there's never enough people and there's, there's always things to do in all areas. Yeah. Right. So I think that's, that's a no brainer. That's easy. But if you're working in a bigger corporation, I think it's just, again, finding out ways of, so ESG, for example, is a big thing that a lot of lawyers or legal teams are being asked to look after. Because again, some companies see it as a compliance tick box, a discussion for another day. But again, that can really help elevate junior lawyers or anyone in the legal team's profile internally and get a different breadth of experience. It might not be purely legal, but again, it's the whole recognition of, oh yeah, I worked with so-and-so from the legal team on, on this, right? And all these things help. And then from a pure legal perspective, again, it's just putting your hand up. And so we have now with our trainee solicitor who, who just qualified and discussions we're having with her now is you know what areas do you want to dig a bit more into and i think what i can do to help her is help her network help her attend seminars webinars you know all of these great things that a lot of companies do and every time there's a piece of work that comes up in that area make sure that she's on it either you know leading it or shadowing you know whatever that might be but i think people should not be afraid to put their hand up and say, Hey, I have an interest in doing this. Mm-hmm. Like at the moment, you know, our, our paralegal who's now a trainee, he was like, I want to do legal ops. So we gave him all of legal ops. Right. So yeah, I think people should not be afraid to sort of put their hand up and say, I have an interest, you know, how do I do more? And again, that just shows a side of you that I think people will appreciate wanting to go above and beyond. Proactive and, yeah. Yeah, taken. and also the other thing I learned, I know you only asked for three, but I'll give you a fourth one. Good. Is Bonus. Don't be, don't be afraid to say you don't know. I think, again, there's such huge pressure. People think or create that pressure that whenever your CEO CFO asks you something, you should know the answer like this. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that you don't. Yeah. And again, if you think of, a, you know, when you engage with external counsel, in a law firm, they all have specialties, right? So no one person knows everything. So yeah. you as a human cannot know yeah. everything. And I think knowing that, I think people appreciate and respect it more. So I've had chats with our founder now and, you know, he actually prefers it when I tell him that I don't know something as opposed to trying to bullshit my way through pretending that I know it and being like, hey, I don't know this. I'll come back to you tomorrow. I'll find you the information. Yeah. Um, and which is why, you know, communities of, of lawyers or just knowing who to pick up the phone to to get that answer within 24 hours is is super valuable. Yeah. But yeah, don't be afraid to say that you don't know. Do you think it's a trait of a lawyer? Do you think as lawyers being thinking that they they should know everything? Or 100%. You don't see in other areas within a business? 
accountants or HR if they have are they happier to say? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Not as much. I think I don't know if it comes from the fact that again we're all sort of trained, or at least there's always this stuff. You know, lawyers get paid to give an answer. Yeah. So therefore, if you get asked something, you need to give them an answer. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that's where it stems from. And then you're going back sort of hundreds of years, right? Yeah. But I think that's still in people's mindset. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was a trainee and, you know, you'd get an email from a client and partners would go berserk if you'd even sort of try to respond to say that you need to, you don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. You need to look into it. Yeah. Whereas again, now I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What am I going to tell you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's no, there's, nobody's winning in that uh, no. with, with, a, with a fudged answer. Amazing. Thank you so much for, as I said, having us today to record this. I've really enjoyed the really enjoyed the conversation. Those are great lessons and uh, really, really good. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Scott. And thank you for listening to Lessons I Learned in Law for more episodes. And we've got a great back catalogue of guests from previous series. Check out harrietbrown.com forward slash podcast. I'm Scott. I'll see you next time.